Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by John Caldwell, the founder of Phones For You. We actually recorded this episode at John's remarkable house in Mayfair and as soon as we walked into his office I put my bag down on his beautiful bespoke boardroom table and left a scratch on the mahogany surface and then just a couple of seconds later I managed to spill some water on the leather upholstery too meaning we had possibly the worst start to a podcast ever but I think we just about got through it and John as you'll hear is a character of extreme warmth and candour and energy despite my best efforts to destroy all of his furniture. Some of his war stories from the early days of Phones For You are incredible, like the time Motorola tried to destroy his entire business with a single deal. But John survived and made Phones For You into a high street staple before selling it in 2006 for just under £1.5 billion. Now most of his efforts are spent on philanthropy and this, as you'll hear, gives him more satisfaction than perhaps anything else. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. John, thanks for joining us on Pleasure. the Gentleman's Journal podcast. Pleasure. I just hope my table uh, lasts the distance. Yes. We've had a couple of near misses with the table. <laughs> no, not so near. They're, they're no, exactly. In, in direct <laughs> hits, sadly. Hits, yeah. um, so we've got one more coming. <laughs> but um, we were talking earlier about how you were kind of a jack of all trades. And, and you said of master none. of none, but I yeah. don't think that's fair. Yeah. I wonder what you tell people you do when you meet them for the first time and they don't happen to know who you are. Oh, do you know, that, that's a difficult one because I am a bit of a jack of all trades. So... Uh, I suppose, you know, it, it, really what I'm known for and what I know I'm uh, the most talented at is business. Yeah. And um, growing, uh, as I did, uh, the Cordwell Group from one employee that was just me sitting in a room on my own, um, from that to 12,000 employees and from sort of probably somewhere in the region of 50 square feet to... Yeah hundreds and hundreds of thousands of square feet and from a value of zero to 1.5 billion. So I think I'd, I'd probably have to say yeah. business first. And I have a natural instinct for any business. It's, the only thing I would say I'm in business terms that I wouldn't be very good at is high tech. Okay. So anything software driven. Right. Software. I can design systems, but I can't understand those software uh achieves that result yeah um and i'm not that much into high tech and uh intangibles so for instance people say what do you think about um uh the currencies i forgot cryptocurrencies uh what do you say what do you think (laughs) about crypto and i say it's an absolute scam yeah and it is a scam but doesn't mean there's not substance 
What I mean by a scam is there's lots of people out there that jump on the bandwagon to, to scam customers. And even if they don't set up in that way, they will end up causing customers to yeah. lose fortunes, but it will win through in the end. Okay. So I absolutely believe in the long-term future. Probably a bit like the Wild West gold rush, yeah. which was actually a bit like cellular was in the early days. Yeah. You know, there's always going to be a winner. Another good example is, is Betamax and VHS, who most of your listeners won't even know about anymore <laughs> because they were the original video recorders, you know, and, uh, and there was this huge battle between Beta and VHS. Yes. One of them won through. And I think crypto is the same. But, uh, but I have, other than that, a real knack for understanding businesses. And I could take almost anybody's business and see the problems within it within a very short space of time and how to improve it and how to drive the bottom line. Yeah. So let's talk about the Wild West of the, the, wild the cellular West. world yeah. and the badlands of mobile phones. Well, you started in 1987. What was it like then? Uh, it, in 87, I started in 86 actually, but it's a, that's semantics really because I think it was December. But okay. in 87, it was um, almost zero trade, zero. So there was no Wild West there because <laughs> nothing was happening. It, it took me months, in 86 this was, it took me months to find somebody who could sell me a mobile phone. Wow. I mean, can you imagine that? Because now when you go through the high street, you'd you'd be struggling to find somebody who couldn't sell you a mobile yeah. phone. In those days, you couldn't find anybody. And our conversations, our research took us through British Telecom, who didn't know they owned Cellnet, didn't know. Uh, they, they didn't. You, you got onto the BT switchboard and mm. they got no idea. And you went through a whole succession of people. And it really was difficult to find somebody to sell you a mobile phone. So in those days, uh, it, it was absolutely in its infancy and unknown. And you'd got to be an expert to be able to know how to buy a mobile phone. Um, but that did change quite rapidly. And come the probably the uh, late, yeah, definitely the late 80s, 89, 90, 91, it did start to be a gold rush. And it attracted a lot of unsavory characters. Right. It attracted a lot of fraud, like anything does that where there's people think there's gold dripping out of it. I mean, in reality, there never was because it was ferocious. But to give you an example of how ferocious it was, we became probably the biggest trade dealer in the mm. UK. And uh, I had a whole team of people building databases up from Yellow Pages in those days, or any way that we could find the new cellular dealers. And at that time, there was three and a half thousand. But guess how many changed annually? How many of those three and a half thousand dealers do you think were in existence one year later? Uh, I don't know, another three and a half thousand? No, no, how, oh, many, how many changed? How many left of the three and a half thousand? I mean, I'm going to have to go a thousand. Yeah, you're not far off. It was, well. it was at least 50%. Okay. 50% were defunct. Within a year. What, what were they Every doing year. wrong? Or were they just cowboys it who was, were in it for a quick Well, month? it was a combination of get-rich-quick cowboys who realised you couldn't do that. Mm -hmm. But but probably mostly people who just didn't realise how tough it was. You know, they thought it was a gravy train, they thought it was easy, and then they, they got into it and realised how tough it was. And six to 12 months later went out of business because yeah. it was too tough for them. What was it that you thought you could bring that they were missing? Oh my goodness, that, 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 that's a 20-hour speech. <laughs> okay. Do you have a two-minute version? 
Not really, no. I mean, I, I, it's look, it's the same in any business that's difficult. It, it's a combination of acute commercial intellect, um, shrewdness, caution. I mean, one of the biggest qualities I've always thought in any businessman is being pessimistic but positive. Mm-hmm. Let me explain that because nobody ever gets this. I've explained it to thousands of employees over the years. What it really means is always realising that there could be a horrendously negative outcome to anything you do. And that negative outcome could be anything from life-threatening to business-threatening. So you've got to understand, first of all, that anything can go wrong and there can be a huge negative outcome. And therefore, taking a negative approach to it, in term, or a pessimistic approach to it, sorry, negative is the wrong word, taking a pessimistic approach that this is what might happen and if that happens what do I do about it having then got that sort of pessimistic underlay then taking an incredibly positive approach that to what you're going to do about it and driving like mad so I always had huge ambitions massive ambitions to grow the business by in the early stages thousands of percents a year I set myself the most impossible, impossible targets. Actually, they weren't because we did actually achieve them. But it was against all the odds, I think, yeah. really. But I always understood what would happen if my most pessimistic view came to fruition. So you have this hugely pessimistic possibility of what could happen in the worst-case scenario whilst trying to shoot for the very best case scenario and be positive now the guy that just is positive all the time and only that is often optimistic and optimism is the absolute death of a business yeah because you just make gambles that you can't succeed or you might succeed but it's luck it's a bit like going into the casino and thinking oh red will come up and put all my money on red and you don't think about what happens if it's black yeah did you ever get close to any kind of black moments did you ever have Many, many black moments, yes, but not as a result of my naivety or stupidity. Um, It was as a result of uh, what other people did to me. And my biggest challenge um, in growing the cellular business was my suppliers, Mm. because they were all a bit Wild West. They wanted land grab, they wanted maximum volume, but at the same time, they then wanted to trim your power down. They never, ever wanted you to be powerful. And I'd got two major groups of suppliers one were the networks or the service providers which the service providers worked on behalf of the networks but you could deal direct with the networks or through service providers so it was all that group of people who provide the commission for connecting to the network yeah and then the other group of people were the were the uh the mobile phone manufacturers the hardware manufacturers so there's those two groups of people and both of them were in this wild west grab and both of them were extremely mercenary, extremely ruthless, and really used you. So they yeah. used you for growth. If you if they got too much growth for, from you, eventually what they wanted to do was clip your wings, mm-hmm. cause you problems, mm-hmm. and move the business elsewhere. Yeah. So you'd done your job, you'd been useful, and then they would uh, try to destroy you. And how did you fend off those attacks when they were trying to destroy you well <laughs> that, that once again you can, <laughs> it's very difficult to bring that out in a brief 
conversation. In fact, it's very difficult to replicate yeah. the actions. But I always remember the day that Motorola came to me and uh, I was trading all over the world. I'd got retail. I was trading all over the world and I'd got massive UK distribution. Uh, and this new manager who uh, came to work for Motorola, he said to me, um, if you don't sign this distribution agreement, then we're going to cut off his supply. Okay. I mean, I, this, this was illegal, what he was trying to do, because he was trying to bully me into a, an agreement that was not part of the original setup. I didn't realize it was illegal at the time, but even if, even if I had, what do I do? Do I fight it and yeah. go bankrupt while I'm fighting it, or do I you know, think, what am I going to do about it? Anyway, they, he used that threat. And I couldn't possibly sign the distribution agreement because the distribution agreement tied me in knots and I'd have been signing my life away. Yeah. I'd have given them complete power to manipulate me till eternity or till they just wanted to shut me down. So I would have lost all my control of my own destiny. And I didn't have that much control anyway because they had it. So at the end of that uh, meeting... And I couldn't really understand where it was coming from because we'd done a phenomenal job for Motorola. We'd distributed a huge percentage of their market share, done a great job, worked really hard for them. But at the end of that meeting, he said to me, look, if anybody was going to distribute Motorola product, it would be me. I took that to mean that he would set up distribution yeah. within Motorola, replicate what we were doing as a business within the Motorola corporate entity. Anyway, he was successful in shutting my business down. It probably was legally challenging, although in fact, almost certainly, because I hadn't done anything to give yeah. him a reason to do that. So it would have been challengeable, but I, I hadn't, you know, I was really at that point in desperate trouble because when he said he was going to shut the business down, that was 95% of my business. And all of a sudden, I'd have no supply. Wow. Zero supply. So about a month later, after I've been shut down completely, this guy named Quigley sets up on the south coast of England as a Motorola distributor. Wow. So he's used his position of power within Motorola to set a business up as a distributor to shut me down yeah. and to then have a distribution agreement himself. And I think that was one of the very few times in my life I've been, been determined to kill two parties. <laughs> one was to kill Motorola yeah. and for allowing it to happen, and one was to kill him. Now, how do you do that then when you've got no business? You know, you've got, no, yeah. you've got nothing, no power. I mean, all, all of a sudden, my profits went straight down the pan. I got no profits left, and, and I got to survive very, very quickly. And what I did, I wooed Nokia, and Nokia had only got 1% market share. Motorola got 90-odd percent market share. When is this, roughly? This would be 80... I don't know exactly the year. 88, 89. Yeah, oh, yeah. very early on, yeah. really. Yeah, in those early years, 88, 89, 90. Those first few years. I'd already got a footing. I'd built a phenomenal business up, and then all of a sudden, bang, shut down. So I wooed Nokia. And as luck would have it, and it was to an extent lot, because Nokia had been around for years and they were useless. They had no commerciality. Mm. They had a product that was okay, but they were too expensive. But as luck would have it, just at this time, Nokia were changing. Their management team were changing in Finland and they started getting more aggressive. 
uh, or in the, in the mind they got more aggressive. It hadn't translated into the marketplace. And they had a, this, this phone that they'd been trying to sell for years called the Cityman. And the Cityman wasn't selling. It was too expensive. I met the, the Motorola, uh, sorry, the Nokia sales director, and he and I got on like a house on fire. Contrary to what I was told before, because everybody said, oh, if he doesn't like you, go nowhere, you know. Wow. And, and, uh, and they were even loath to bring him to me. In fact, they said he won't travel to you. And I said, well, I'm not traveling to him. You know, I'm the customer. If he wants to do business with me, he's going to have to come and meet me in my territory so that he can have a look at the what we're doing and he can understand what we're about. Anyway, he did come and we got on like a house on fire against the odds. And about a month later, we did a deal for the entire stock of Nokia's Cityman, which was 3,000 units, which in those days was the biggest deal ever done wow. in the history of mobile. <laughs> Today, 3,000 units, you'd just, you'd just sort of buy that at the click of a finger. Yeah. I mean, I was doing deals for for quarter of a million units towards the end of before I sold out. Yeah. So we did that deal for 3,000 units. I couldn't afford to pay for them, so I managed to negotiate that they would sit on them. I'd take them within three months, um, and I'd use the cash from selling some to buy the next lot. Okay. But I'd got to take them within the three months. So I started selling them, and I particularly attacked the Motorola dealers, all the Motorola dealers that we'd been selling Motorola product to. I went into them extremely aggressively. And I had done a phenomenal deal. It was an amazing deal for me. It was a life-saving deal. That's why I say there's a bit of luck involved. Yeah. Uh, it was a life-saving deal. But we had the power to distribute them and the techniques to get them into the market. And we used all sorts of incentives, both from commission on airtime yeah. right the way through to very low price on the product itself. And we saturated the market with these phones and got going. Now, at the same time, in parallel to that, I couldn't survive on just those Nokia. And what I did, I did joint buying deals with some of the big service providers, which gave them more volume, gave them better selling prices, better buying prices. But at the same time, it also gave me a better buying price than I'd enjoyed with Motorola. Right. But we had to keep it secret because Motorola would have cut off their supply. So Motorola would have just ruthlessly manipulated them. So we kept it a secret, and I just put misinformation into the marketplace as to where I was buying them from to put Motorola off the scent. Okay. And eventually, I got a really big Motorola base selling phones. But what I then started doing to hurt Motorola was I was buying them cheap enough to destroy their distribution on price. Okay. So I started selling them a lot cheaper than I needed to to give Motorola uh, pain to give them a pain in the process. And at the same time as doing that, I was pushing Nokia. And we did the next deal on Nokia, which was their next phone, which was an absolute world beater. And I got a phenomenal price off them, wow. massive distribution agreement. And we took Nokia within a year from 1% market share to 22% on our own. They grew their market share a little bit as well, yeah. besides. But meanwhile, I was hurting Motorola with their own product Perfect. by undercutting their base. And I hurt them so much that the new management came back in and said, how can we fix this? Okay. So I managed to save the day. <laughs> and at the same time as saving the day, ended up with massive power with Motorola to negotiate with them and get a, a proper supply mm. agreement back in place. And at the same time, I'd grown Nokia's market share. So short term, I was their hero. Okay. You know, and that's, wow. that's how we got through one of the most critical times of my business career. You talk about luck there. 
and some of it seems to come down to that relationship you had with uh, the most uh, the Nokia management. Yeah, well, you know, the, the lucky bit really was that Nokia were ready to deal, yeah. and they hadn't been previously, so that was the lucky bit. The rest is solely down to skill. I'd built the biggest distribution business in the UK. Mm. We'd got a fantastic reputation for doing what we said we would do. We were very honourable, very ethical, but very aggressive, as you can probably tell from the tone of this conversation. Of course, yeah. And if somebody ruthlessly tried to put me out of business, I would do everything in my power to hurt them. Yeah. And, you know, and you don't want to do business that way. You want to do business with people who are ethical, who do agreements with you, make agreements with you, and honour those agreements. And you can have a trading relationship that might at some point be in contention, but that is fundamentally cooperative yeah. and win-win for both parties. Of course. But these manufacturers in those days were dreadful. And the networks, they were all ruthless. You know, they were... What it, I'll tell you what it taught me. It taught me that if I'd got the choice between dealing with a owner-manager like I was, where you could look into that person's eyes, do a deal, and know that was the person you are going to be dealing with in a year's time or two years' time and hold them accountable, I'd much rather do that than these faceless corporates where one managing director comes in, does atrocious things, gets sacked or moves on, and then somebody else comes in. It was much better to deal with the entrepreneur. And it may be that that entrepreneur was greedier than the corporate people yeah. and more shrewd and more capable, but they were on average a lot more honourable. Of course. I'd like to ask you about the name as well, Phones For You. How did you come upon that? Was that, were there other names in contention? Well, it was in the early 90s and uh, our business was very, very B2B. Yeah. Because that's all there was. Because, you know, your your listeners won't realise how much a mobile phone was in those days. How much in But it was £1,500. When I started off, it's £1,500. And that's in 86. So yeah. That's 30 years ago. Mm. It probably, in today's value, comes out at six, 7000 Just but, for the unit? Just for the phone. Right. But then the airtime in London was £33 a month, okay. which probably comes out in today's money as £250 a month. And the cost of the calls were 33 pence a minute wow. in London, but there was no single second billing. So if you made a call and two <laughs> seconds later it dropped out, that was 33 pence, £2.50 in today's money. Yeah. You know, so it, it, was, it was incredibly a rich expensive game. to run a mobile phone in those days. So, but then Phones for You came out of that because you wanted to bring it to the yeah, high street. That, that was the question, wasn't it? Yeah. I, lost, <laughs> I, lost the, I lost track of the question there, but that, that was the question, which is, the, the mobile phones were incredibly expensive. And then uh, both Vodafone and Cellnet, in response to each other, decided they were going to try and go for the consumer market. Mm. And they introduced Local. And Local was, uh, came out, I think, if I remember right, at £12.77 a month instead of the, uh, of, of the £33. And also the cost of the kit came down. So it started to become a consumer mm -hmm. item so I'm mostly business to business but there is a bit of consumerism beginning to creep in and it was crystal clear to me that that was the start of a j-curve which was going to mean that eventually every consumer in the UK would have a mobile phone yeah and therefore I needed to start protecting my business to business area but at the same time being a lot more and the forefront of, uh, of phone retailing. Yeah. So I asked 
three different marketing agencies to pitch for our long-term growth with a retail proposition. And part of that uh, pitching was to come up with a name. So they had to come up with a name, up with a strategy, and up with the marketing collateral to go with it. And one of those, I think it was Ken Erickson, if I remember rightly, came up with Phones For You. And uh, I didn't like it. Um, in those days, it sounded really naff, okay. really um, a childish type name, very inappropriate for, a, for what was quite a sophisticated, expensive marketplace. But on balance, I thought it sounds quite trip because it was P for you, okay. phones for you. And I ended up thinking, and, and we designed, designed, color, designed colors red, blue, and white, which are very consumer-type colors. And uh, I ended up thinking, I'll do it. But what I did, I protected my business by calling that business for you. Right. Still a little bit too much on the amateurish side, on the consumer side, but tying in the brand, but giving it some more strength by saying it's business for you. Okay. And uh, and that's how we launched. Yeah. And we launched the name and then started by uh, setting up shops and opening up shops. Of course. And you, you mentioned earlier that you then grew it to have, did you say 15,000 employees at... 12,000. 12,000 employees. Yeah. Well, I actually, uh, I never actually had 12,000 because I sold single point. Okay. Which um, is the... When I'd got 10,000. Yeah. And that was 2,000 employees, and I sold them to Vodafone. So I sold single point to Vodafone, and then carried on growing, and we sure. ended up with 10,000. So in, in total, it would have been 12,000 if it had all happened at the same time. And what kind of people did you like working for you? Who did you hire? Well, you know, when you've got that volume, you've not got so much choice. No. But, but the uh, because we were recruiting thousands of people a year, but uh, always the same characteristics, which are, which are my absolute vital characteristics of or a successful yeah. individual. And this is this applies at any level, which is ambition, drive, passion, resilience, commercial intellect, and leadership. Now, of course, you don't need so much commercial intellect and leadership if all you're doing is answering the phone to a, to a customer. But the more of those six critical success factors that you have, the more successful you will be. Yeah. And do you think you tick all of those in all those seven? Was there seven? <laughs> In space? Six. 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 Well, that massively um, not one of mine then. Yeah, I, I've, I've got complete full set, yeah. Okay. Uh, but extreme as well, because my ambition knew no bounds. Yeah. And my drive and passion knew no bounds. I was incredibly, incredibly driven and passionate. Um, and the only one of those six that was luck was resilience, because the other five were sort of, well, I suppose they're all lucky, really, because if mm. you're born with them, which I was... I had to develop them massively, but I was born with those six attributes. But five of those were developable. Um, and of course they were the, well, no, the ambition's not developable really. You've got the ambition yeah, or you same. haven't. Probably the same with drive. And uh, But the one that uh, you cannot develop in any way, shape or form or is resilience. And I watched huge numbers of people in my business career fall foul of lack of resilience where their health failed them because of the stresses and pressures yeah. of a very difficult business and working long hours and fighting and that was within my own business as well as witnessing other people in the outside world yeah so i was very very lucky really to be born with resilience of course and uh, and that 
without that resilience, I would have never succeeded. Uh, without doubt, I would have never succeeded because it was so tough that I was living on the edge of my nerves so much, working 18 hours a day and under phenomenal pressure. And, you know, you just think of that, this issue where Motorola shut my account down overnight. Yeah. Imagine that. It, it's beyond, it was beyond catastrophic. Of course. And I don't lose many nights sleep, but I didn't sleep for about four or five nights after that oh. because I was in a, an absolute doomsday scenario. So the resilience was, that kicked was in. vital. Of course. You know, it was really vital. And you made it through till 2006 when you sold the most, most of your shares. Yeah. And then you sold another lot later on. Yeah, well, I, I, I sold um, 100% of 2020 of the distribution businesses, yeah. which there was about seven or eight of those, and uh, kept 25% of phones for you. But effectively, I sold it all because mm. I sold it all, but then I was able to buy back in um, at the reduced rate because that's how private equity work. It's leverage, yeah. you know, so it's 90% borrowing and 10% for the share equity. And I took 25% of that, 10% value so it didn't cost me hardly anything and it was a criteria for allowing the company uh, to buy phones for you it was a criteria that I wanted to retain 25% because while I knew phones for you was vulnerable I also knew it could still have a good few years of success yeah why then then why 2006 why did that feel like the right moment to kick that off uh, well it wasn't it was it should have been earlier than that because in 2002 I was forecasting a devastating recession in the UK not worldwide, a devastating recession in the world in, in the UK. So in 2002, I decided to groom the business for sale. By 2004, I'd got it somewhere near saleable. Mm. And so we started the sale process. And it took the rest of the time until September 2006 to sell. And when we did sell it in September 2006, we were already on the cusp of it being too late mm. because... The financial crisis that hit in 2008 was sort of indicated in 2003-04, but not very clearly indicated. But by 2006, it was very clearly indicated. And especially by September 2006, yeah. the signs were all over the place that this ridiculous bubble that everybody had built during the early 2000s was going to burst. And it was really crystal clear it was going to burst. Mm. And I was sitting on the edge of my seat trying to get this deal done, knowing that almost every day that went by, the chances of doing the deal were less. Wow. Anyway, we managed to get it done. And I, I mean, we'll never know the answer, but I think if it had been one day later, we wouldn't have achieved wow. one or two days later because the, the signs were there. I, I'll give you an example of that. Um, the ridiculous nature of what was happening in those greedy early 2000s were a combination of greed of the private equity houses and greed of the banks. So a really smart private equity house was managing to get up to 95% borrowing against a purchase of a business. Mm. Combination of uh, expensive mezzanine debt and core debt, but nonetheless, you put the two together and they were borrowing up to 95%. They'd only got 5% skin in the business. So they were able to take risks. And that also meant they were able to pay top money. They were able to pay high money because they were borrowing everything. you know. And so they were only looking for a return on 5% of the money. As long as they could finance the debt, all yeah. of their profit was on 5%, not on 100%. And, and that was clearly preposterously overinflated. And what started happening is 
during the 2005-06, the mezzanine debt and the core debt started shrinking. And so it wasn't 95%, it was 90 and then 85. And it was gradually shrinking as the financial institutions started realising how stupid they'd been and how dangerous a game yeah. they were playing. And, and it started shrinking. And so as that shrunk, I knew my opportunity to sell was shrinking with it. Of course. Um, so it was very... Last minute on, stuff. It was last minute. And I, I would have sold it in 2005 if I could have done. Yeah. But, you know, it was... It took such a long time to sell the business because it was complex. It was extremely aggressive, extremely competitive. And so all the buyers were fairly nervous and cautious about making a purchase. Of course. Then a few years later, you in 2014, it went into administration yeah. and was gone from the high street shortly after that. Did that make you sad that something you set up kind of disappeared in a puff of smoke. Yeah, it made, it made me very sad, but it also made me angry because that business was a phenomenal business. It was a phenomenal business when I sold it, probably better than when, better than at the end, but it was still a great business. You know, the management team that I left behind did a great job of building that business and mm. carrying it on against really huge commercial pressures. And they were making big money. But it was always clear that the networks once they'd got the the land grab, once they'd actually achieved most of the volume that was available in the UK, it was always clear that they were going to get make it more and more difficult for somebody like Phones for You to uh, to prosper. But what made me really angry was the way it was done, uh, and this is a very very interesting aspect to what happened. And I went on television to to explain this. Television, radio. I did thirty interviews in a twenty four hour period fighting against the networks because it was on the Monday mm. after they'd really absolutely ruthlessly and I believe illegally shut down phones for you. And uh, and so I went on in the vain hope that maybe it had tweaked somebody's conscience somewhere and they'd changed their mind. I didn't think there was even 1% chance, but I couldn't let phones for you disappear yeah. like that. And 5,000 employees who were brilliant, a brilliant, brilliant team, just disappear just because of the ruthless activity of the networks. So I went on to uh, all the media to describe why I believed it to be illegal and how it had happened. And it happened that Cellnet, there was three suppliers in those days. There was Cellnet, Vodafone and EE. And Cellnet dropped out first. And they dropped out six months before phones for you were put into receivership. Now, why did they drop out? And I mean, why, as in, theoretically, why would it be? I know why it was. Right. It was collusion, in my, in my view. But why would they drop out when, you know, there was still a long way to go in the cellular marketplace and everybody was absolutely desperate still for connections, but the writing was on the wall and they dropped out six months before. Well, I know the reason, because six months later, Vodafone dropped out. That left EE as the only incumbent supplier of phones for you. And this happened overnight. Now, if I were EE or you were EE, what you'd say is, oh gosh, there's no competition left. I can do whatever I want with phones for you. I can buy the cheapest connections ever known to man because phones for you will have nowhere to go. I can look at their profitability. They're making a hundred odd million. I can strip that hundred million out by paying them commissions that are 50% less than I was paying. Phones for you would survive 
And meanwhile, I'd fatten my profitability and my balance sheet at the expense of Phones for Use shareholders and profitability, but they would survive. And that would be absolutely gold dust for EE, gold dust. Wow. And no businessman in the right mind would have done anything other than milk that situation. Now, you might have been less ruthless than I'm suggesting there. You might have left Phones for You with a little bit of profitability and been a bit kinder because of the relationship and everything else. You might have been, but you didn't have to be. You didn't need to be. It was only a question of the management team of EE deciding how they were going to handle it. And yet what happened? They're sitting on top of a gold mine and the next day they withdrew their supply agreement. So you think it was all agreed beforehand? Oh, absolutely. Wow. I mean, absolutely. A cartel. Absolutely a cartel. Absolutely illegal. I would be amazed if that's not the case. There is class action actually now. Uh, There's litigation being brought against... uh, uh, against the networks for collusion. I'm not quite sure technically what the claim is, but it's uh, fundamentally about this collusionary um, environment. Uh, I would I, Whether it'll get proven or not is, is another matter, because I'm sure those networks have been extremely clever to cover the tracks. Wow. But logically, to me, there is no doubt about collusion, because if I was EE and you, anybody was EE, you'd just think... Oh, you know, all my Christmases have come at once. I'll reduce Phones for Use Commission. My profitability is going to go through the roof. My share value is going to go through the roof. This is amazing. And I'll build a phenomenal relationship with Phones for You. They'll be my vehicle to market. Um, they won't be very profitable, but I'll keep them surviving. And they've got nowhere else to go. Incredible. I can understand why you'd be angry. It is incredible. That. That's what made me angry. I mean, if they'd have gone out of business as a result of their own inability to manage the business. I would have been sad because a lot of my employees were still in that business when it went under. And I had huge amounts of uh, messages from people who were crying about it, you know, and who said it was the best company they'd ever worked for. And it was a brilliant company. I still get those messages now, you know, 12 years later, 14 years later, I still get messages saying what an amazing company, how it taught them so much, how it was the best job they'd ever had. And all of a sudden, killed like that through collusion and in in a way that was so sudden. And it it was very sad, but more than that, it just made me extremely angry because I instantly saw through what had happened. Yeah. God, that's incredible. I wonder how that lawsuit's going to get resolved. It'll be very interesting. Yeah. I really, really hope that the uh, the people who are bringing the suit against, I mean, that's all about money now, mm. but the networks deserve to pay. And of course, if collusion was proven, there'd be a more serious charge sure. brought against the networks. It wouldn't just be a civil action. No. It potentially could be beyond that. Wow. So, you know, I really hope that they uh, that comes to court. I hope they lose. Yeah. And I hope they get the just desserts for what they've done, which, uh, in my opinion, was probably illegal, but certainly unbelievably ruthless. John, you've pledged to give, I think it's up to 70% or 70% of your, um, of your fortune to charities yeah. when you die, which hopefully won't be for a long time. But how do you decide well, um, which charities are, are worthy of it? You must have... A huge amount of options. and Yeah, and I've got, I've got a set of criteria. But when, right. when I uh, sold the business in 2006, I got all that money. I got 1, $1.3 billion uh, of money. 
and I wondered what on earth I was going to do with it. And it weighed heavily on me for a while because... What do you mean by that? Well, I knew I didn't want my children to have it. You know, I absolutely dead against passing vast fortunes through to your family and children. Do you think it tends to... I think it destroys the life. It makes them lazy, destroys the life, uh, and uh, it gives them no sense of personal satisfaction. You know, I brought my children up to be a very... Uh, not socially small socialist as in with a small s you have a socialist type mentality to look after other people uh, but also to be happy and successful in their own right and uh, leaving them with vast sums of money would not be to their in their best interest at all nor is it in any child's best interest you need to be there to encourage them to find their own success their own satisfaction their own happiness not just to be killed off with vast sums of money. Of course. So I was dead against that. Uh, so that did weigh heavy on, heavily on me. And then I suddenly came up with the idea of leaving 50% to charity. So I immediately put that in my will. And what that did was parceled half the money off. So I only had to now worry about the other <laughs> half, which was still a lot of money. Yeah. But it wasn't as much as 100%. And so uh, I did that in 2007. Yeah. Uh, and then a little bit later, Bill Gates and uh, Warren Buffett started up the Giving Pledge, of course. which was a pledge to give 50% away. So you were ahead so, of the curve. So I it? thought I might as well join them yeah. just for another name on their, you know, on their list to try and influence people. Um, and then a, a couple of years ago, I increased it to 70% because I thought, you know, 50% left to my family is too much. Okay. And my, my ultimate aim is probably to leave 90% to charity, wow. but I need to make a little bit more money first, otherwise Fine. the remaining 10 <laughs> might not be quite enough for what I want to do. But I'd like to get to 90%, but it will depend on how much money I make in the future. And since I spend a lot of my life not really making money, it's all about charitable purposes then, um, you know, the, the effort going into making money is not, not and hasn't been for the last 10 years very strong. Of course. The charities that I support, I mean, first of all, the charity that I founded, which is Cordwell Children, which helps uh, children with any one of 650 illnesses. But we have a real specialism in autism. And we help children that would no way get any help in any other way if we didn't do it. So we've transformed about 40-odd thousand children's lives up to yet over the last 20 years. And we're hoping that that will ramp up dramatically over the next few years. Uh, we've just built this uh, new centre in uh, Keele University grounds, which is 60,000 square feet. With autistic kids alone, we can put uh, probably 10,000 autistic children through that centre wow. a year in years to come. Not yet, because we've got to gear up yeah. the medical team and the expertise. But we will be able to help probably 10,000 a year of uh, in that category and also in the other categories the other 650 illnesses I'd like to ramp that up to at least 10,000 so 20,000 children a year in the future so uh, and I did put 10 million towards the building I match funded uh, Trudy had still got to raise 10 million and I match funded the other 10 as well as still continuing to pay all the operating and administrative expenses that's the charity that's closest to my heart because a it's phenomenally effective and efficient yeah um, there's no nepotism, there's no anything in that charity. It's really hard-nosed in terms of commercially, very, very hard-nosed commercially with a huge heart and passion to change children's lives. Yeah. And that's what I want to see in charities that I help. But actually, there's very few like it. You know, most charities, You, when I look into most charities, I'm not um, overly enthusiastic about what I see. 
Of course. There's always things I see that I'm not very keen on. Yeah. Um, but I do manage to find other charities to help, of course. And uh, I mean, I helped Elton John for a long time because I went over to South Africa with Elton, saw the work he was doing, and seeing how little money they donated to local causes. And those local causes, which were charities themselves, just were leveraging the money like no tomorrow. And for instance, building schools out of an old shipping container yeah. that cost a few hundred pounds. So I was really impressed with the work Elton did. And, uh, and I visited quite a lot of his work in South Africa and it was, uh, I mean, it was heart-wrenching. I always remember the, um, going to one of the uh, South African little, little villages and uh, there was a girl there who, who spoke about her experiences mm. and a whole family had died of HIV all the family by the time she was, I think, 10 or 11. I think she'd then been raped by one of the villagers, and so she had HIV. And then the only help that she could get was the charity of the villagers who took her in for a night here and a night yeah. there. And those sort of dramatic and traumatic uh, occurrences really touched my heart. Yeah. So I, I helped, helped uh, Elton quite a lot. So there are good charities that of help there. You know, there's some very good ones, but there's some... That wouldn't qualify for my money. Yeah, I've heard I've, when I've read interviews with you and, and listened to them, you seem to care a lot about your legacy and how and what you leave behind, not just in ten years, but in kind of a hundred years, whether that's through building things or yeah, charities. It, 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 it is about legacy because I'd hate it to say on my tombstone, you know, here lies a successful businessman that made a billion, because so what? It doesn't mean anything. I want to be recognised as a successful businessman. That's a matter of pride. And it also represents who I am and what I've been most of my entire life. But it would be a very lonely tombstone, that would, with just that on. And I really want to be known more than anything as a philanthropist who's changed children's lives. It's not just about heritage, though. I mean, heritage comes into it. It's about how it makes me feel on a day-to-day -day basis, how my mind and heart feels about what I'm doing and the passion that I've got. And I do, Modesta and I do spend 60, 70% of our time. I mean, we can't even be in the gym without talking about charity. And then Claire comes on the phone and I'm talking to, and I've got a brilliant new idea for this year, how to raise money for Cordwell children. And I'm gasping away on the cross trainer and my whole 40 minutes on the cross trainer <laughs> is talking to Claire about this new idea I've got for how to raise significant money and change a lot more children's lives. And I do genuinely live, breathe, and eat it. And, and I don't say that as a, in any martyrdom way. I mean, I love it. I love it because the passion of changing people's lives, when you see that child's life change, it's unbelievable. One of the little girls that we helped when she was three, she's now 19, called Tilly, um, she was type 2 muscular atrophy, couldn't move a body at all, um, was really on the floor as... Uh, as physically incapable, but also mentally inferior because she was physically inferior. And we put her in this special powered wheelchair, which cost £20,000, wow. and it transformed her life completely. And only last year, I visited her in uh, San Francisco in Stanford University, and she was there. She'd won a scholarship, wow. and she was there leading a life with all the best students in the world, and I was on my bike and she was in a powered wheelchair and we went to Starbucks and had a cup of coffee together. And it was a magical moment. But we've got lots of those magical of moments. Course. You know, like the little boy that had got uh, Leo, who had got um, 
Uh, he'd got a version of cerebral palsy, but it left his legs paralyzed. He couldn't move his legs. So he was dragging his legs along the floor wow. with his hands. And his jeans kept wearing out, but he got no life, really. You know, his life was crawling around the floor on his hands, dragging his legs around. Two years after we intervened, I was at a charity event that we were, uh, I think we were co-hosting with Eva Longoria, if I remember, remember rightly. And Leo came on the stage, ran along the stage and jumped in my arms and gave me a barber's rub. I don't know why he did the barber's rub, but anyway, he did. That, that was just the fat sobbing. And to see that little fella, yeah, you know, uh, it, it, there's no money on earth that can make you feel like that makes you feel. There's no boats, there's no houses like this. You know, this is lovely to have, but it doesn't matter. What does matter is that feeling of extreme spiritual comfort that you get when you've done something like that. Incredible. John, there's so much more I'd love to ask you about, but sadly, I think you've got other engagements now. But thank you so much for coming on the Genderless Journal podcast and talking about all those things so so movingly, so wonderfully. Pleasure. Wonderful. Great pleasure. Thank you. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more. That always reminds me of when I went on television to do an interview about something. I can't remember what it was about, but it might have been about the cellular industry. And it was a long time ago. And in those days, Motorola had a ringtone, which was Hello. Oh, yeah. Do you remember it? It was Hello Moto. Hello Moto. Yeah, Yeah, that was it, exactly. Hello Moto. (laughs) And and I'm live, and it goes, Hello Moto. (laughs) And I'm panicking to get the phone. Hello Moto. I managed to switch it off. So I switch it off. Two minutes later, Hello Moto. I did it three times. Each time, I genuinely tried to switch the power off. And I mustn't have held the button long enough. God. So they got Hello Moto live <laughs> three times. I just wish to, I wish to goodness I'd, I'd set that up because yeah. I could have used, I could have gained phenomenal commercial advantage out of Motorola for that. <laughs>